Our minds are so powerful that what we focus on reverberates through every aspect of our lives. So why not see what happens when we put our attention on all the good things people are doing? Join me for the good with Teresa G as we start a ripple effect by focusing on all the greatness in the world. Josh Heiser is one of those artists that if you don't know of him yet, you will be happy to know of him after this conversation. I personally have followed Joshua and his work for over two decades now. Prior to 2013, most of Josh's work was non-objective abstract work. Then in 2013, with the birth of his son, Keaton, it was as though Josh's artistic expression blossomed into an entirely new direction. Keaton is an amazingly beautiful and gifted child that just so happens to have Down syndrome. It is fascinating to me how having Keaton completely synthesized Josh's art into focusing on the unique beauty of everyday objects. Josh, I'm so excited to have you with us today. I'm very excited to be here. Thanks for having me. Yeah, you know, uh, anymore, your art reminds me of Norman Rockwell paintings because of the nostalgia it creates in me. Hmm, that's interesting. Have you ever heard that? But you're the first person to bring up Norman Rockwell, but um, I have heard comments about nostalgia before, so I appreciate that. Thank you. Hmm, yeah, that's interesting. I'm the first person that s- sees the similarities in those because to me, they're like in in your both of your work because to me, it's glaringly obvious. <laughs> yeah, so, <laughs> I understand. I mean, that, um, <laughs> so, well, let me ask: How did your childhood nurture this the artist in you? Well, that's a good question. Um, quite honestly, um, I was a fairly hyperactive child and I had focus issues. <laughs> I think my mother would agree to that. Um, and I had, I remember very much when I was a little boy, I had a, I had a nagging feeling that I was supposed to be doing something and I didn't know what that something was. Um, and I used to tell my mom this all the time that I was like, I would bother her <laughs> saying things like, I'm supposed to be doing something. What is it? And the only thing that ever fixed it, yeah, the only thing that really ever fixed it was when she put me down at a table with watercolors or or pencils or crayons, you know? And so it started there for sure. And then um, as I be, you know, as I became older, got past five years old, six years old, seven years old, I started becoming interested in just translating the world I saw in front of me onto paper. I was fascinated by the translation of the 3D world into a two-dimensional plane, to the flat plane. I couldn't believe that I could convey a road going off into the distance or a river going off into the distance just by the way I put my lines together. So there was a personal fascination that took over in my childhood. And I spent I mean, many, many, many hours by myself as a kid working these problems out, you know, um, trying to figure out the rules of that translation process. Wow. That's amazing because I would try to draw the road into the distance and get frustrated and just leave. (laughs) So that shows a lot in a (laughs) child to have that focus and determination to sit there and figure it out, you know? Well, thank you. I, I was, I don't know why I have really, Quite honestly, I have the same trait as you in a lot of things uh, where in my life where if this didn't work, I thought, well, obviously this isn't for me. And for some reason, 
I push through with the drawing stuff. And I, I don't really understand it, you know, to this day, I don't. But having gone through all of that, and then I started drawing in school, um, I remember actually in fifth grade, there was a, a doodle artist whose name I will not remember, came to our school and did doodle drawings, showed the kids how to make doodles, essentially. And the entire school was in the auditorium in Wilson School in Bozeman. And I remember we, the whole school was excited about this. And I thought to myself at the end of it, I thought, well, I can do all that stuff. <laughs> <laughs> like, so, I'm already past that point. <laughs> yeah, I'm like, I'm doing that. I'm doing it. And, the, and I, I was surprised that the kids loved it. So um, I remember very clearly in fifth grade uh, working with a friend named Jeremy, and we created a cartoon character together. And then the next year in sixth grade, that group of characters spread and got bigger and bigger. And I started, I, I became known in my class as one of the kids who could draw, you know, so that, that helped me out socially <laughs> big time. So can you remember, so was, was there a defining moment when you decided that you wanted your life focus to be on art, you think, or that you can recall? That's a really good question. I mean, I've, I've never been able to maybe concisely answer that question, and I'll, but I'll try. You know, th there was times in my life where things happened which made me realize I should point in that direction. Um, you know, when I had a high school art teacher who I respected deeply tell me that I should keep drawing, that, he, that my self-portrait was beautiful, you know, things like that. Um, I, I won a little contest in college of my about you know about artwork and so i things every once in a while something would happen which would point me in that direction but i was hesitant to claim that i was going to be an artist because i didn't think it was possible i didn't you know what i mean i didn't think i could no like what make a uh, oh because of the money financial yeah everybody told you that everybody spent my whole life telling me that i was going to die poor if I did that, you know? <laughs> right, right. That's great to be telling oh. a young, inspiring <laughs> someone with their goals. You will die poor, but good luck. <laughs> exactly. You know, but, and I mean, I can sense my father even had, uh, he was worried, like, well, what, you know, he didn't know what I would do with it. You know, am I going to draw portraits or how, you know, he, everybody was concerned about it. So, you know, I went into college for different things architecture and engineering and all this stuff. But the further I went down the road, things fell away and I just, I ended up with art. <laughs> I can't mm -hmm. put it any other way. Was there someone in particular in, during that journey that sort of pushed you more into, you know, like this is what you should do, like that really helped you feel more confident in going down that road? Because it sounds like a lot of people were saying, well, huh, you know, I don't know if this is something that can support you. Right. Yeah. So, yeah. And that's the thing is that the not the people who are worried were all my family members, right? Mm. <laughs> so I, <laughs> well, of I understood. Of course. Right. Right. I understood what their concern was and that it, I also understood that it might be a little too conservative or safe or something like that, you know? So I, I was, I wasn't completely closed down to the world of art, but having you know, I had two professors one time in college sit me down because my major was not art in undergraduate school. It was psychology. And I had two of my drawing professors pulled me aside one day and they basically said to each other in front of me, 
isn't it frustrating when your best student isn't even an art major? And I said, Mm -hmm. and the message was very clear. (laughs) Mm -hmm. This is like, don't, don't, you know, downplay the skill and what you have. And so even at that point, I didn't change my major. You know, I finished out my plan. I did my art minor and my psychology major. And it was, it was only until two years after I graduated from undergraduate that I decided that I had to commit to art. Oh, really? Yeah. That was a very personal process that didn't really involve anybody but my own self in the end. So I applied to graduate school and I got in. So that, that helped seal the deal. Wow. That's fabulous. Can you, t- can you remember or can you tell us a little bit about, sort of talk to us about the many years that you focused on abstract art and what drew you to that? Because when I first met you, you were completely abstract. It was all abstract. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, I can, this is a, I mean, it's a slightly embarrassing story in a way because the thing that, you know, as a child, all the way up into college, my goal in, with artwork was to draw things from observation and be realistic. And when I, by the time I was about 20 years old in college, uh, I was full of youthful arrogance. <laughs> Weren't we all? Yeah, right. I was totally convinced that I had learned everything I could learn about drawing from observation. And in a sense, I became bored. And so, and I had, and I had been increasingly more and more exposed to different artists over the years. And many of which were abstract artists. And I started playing around with form. And I had one of my drawing professors actually told me that he was more interested in my abstract work than my my direct observation work, which <laughs> was surprising to me. Um, but he, I have to say, he helped me go into that direction. And the deeper and deeper I got into the art world and, and knew more about 20th century art, the more interested I was in expressing myself in that manner. Mm-hmm. You felt like it was an emotional release too. Yeah, it was a, just a, it was a way of communicating different, you know, it was a way of communicating about internal feelings in a visual realm. And I think you did good at that, though, because, you know, it's not, your paintings, to me, I could say, oh, wow, this is like very, I can feel so much turmoil in this painting. And I think like the first painting I saw that you right, did, I was like, right. so you were really upset when you did this because, <laughs> you know, I'm like young and never, <laughs> I don't know the art lingo and stuff. And you're like, yeah, yeah, you could see that. <laughs> yeah, <fine. laughs> and there was plenty of work that was very agitated in that youth. You know, I was... um you know, when you're in your 20s, you don't know. You're trying to figure things out, and things are frustrating. I mean, I, my my memory of the 20s is frustration. Like, will I ever make money? Will the world ever embrace me? And so I was trying to, I was working all this stuff out on a canvas with colors and shapes and splatters and whatever it mm-hmm. took, you know. And I loved, I loved your abstract work, too. I mean, we have a few of your abstract paintings here, and I love them. Well, thank it you. was a different time and a different, you were painting differently and, and uh, creating differently. But I have to say they, they, too, are pretty awesome. Thank you very much. I appreciate that. So in 2013, you and Leah, your wife, had Keaton, your son, who has Down syndrome. Correct. Can you define why that experience sparked a change in your art or did that experience 
was that one of the experiences that sparked this change? Absolutely. I have to go all the way back to the beginning with when Keaton was born, um, he, there were some issues with his lungs and he couldn't get enough oxygen saturation in his blood on his own. So that and a few other small issues caused us to be in the neonatal intensive care unit for a couple of weeks. Um, And then we were sent home with oxygen tanks and, and tubing and oximeters and all these machines. And we, because Keaton was attached to all this machinery at home, we couldn't really go anywhere with him. It was very difficult to leave the house. We did try a couple times, but um, it was very complicated. And so for about two months after we got home, we were just in our house. And it was basically living in a deprivation tank. You know, my life very much is about visual experience and getting out in the world and seeing things and I, I thrive off of seeing mm-hmm. and spending two months in a, in a box <laughs> had an, an enormous impact on me that I didn't foresee. Uh, I, but I had, I had so little visual stimulation during that time that I had a weird moment where I was eating lunch after I, was, I remember rocking Keaton in the rock and play right next to me. And I'm eating my lunch and on the table, there's a little McCormick pepper tin and the way the light came in from the window and hit the tin cast a shadow on the table. And the, I, I became, I just was locked in on that all of a sudden. And I was realizing how beautiful all these shapes were and how beautiful the light was. And up to this point, I had not one time in my life chosen to make a drawing or a painting of an object. Ever. I was forced to do that in school all the time. We were drawing, we drew still life objects all the time in school. And it, I chalked it up as educational stuff that's boring, right? <laughs> I, hmm. I hmm. Had, just had never given objects really the time of day until this time period. And all of a sudden I had this experience and I knew that I had to draw it or paint it. And so when I got the time, I did. And it was an eye-opening experience. And I've been going down that road ever since. It's interesting because it's almost like being confined where you're not getting overly stimulated actually sort of helped you see the, the beauty or the amazing of, of the single object. Absolutely. Yes, it made me much more sensitive. Whereas I would have passed over that Pepperton in a different time because actually at the time when Keaton was born, I was really getting into these landscape images. I was, oh, I was right. doing a lot of photography. Yeah. I was yeah. going crazy with black and white landscape photography. And there were, there was, I certainly wasn't noticing objects at the time. So having that deprivation tank experience where I'd had no experiences of my eyes weren't being used. Yes, I became very, very sensitive to any sort of stimulation. That was a very eye-opening experience, just to know that that lacking sensation could cause that in me. So that was neat. Hmm, that is interesting. Because usually you are the first to get up and get out there, <laughs> you know, <laughs> go out there yeah, and see whatever yeah, the landscape I, is or whatever the city or, you know, whatever whatever's out there. Exactly. I'm always, I'm always trying to be open and looking, you know, and 
And as you know, every time I visited you, or, or it, that I'm always out and about. Mm-hmm. Yeah, totally. <laughs> totally. That's you. That's who yeah. you are. Yeah. So really it was the, it was having Keaton and being confined into this space, but what about just having Keaton? Did having Keaton have any impact on your artistic expression? Do you mean having a child or do you mean having a child with special needs? Well, either or, or, cause you know, I mean, I'm sure having a child has an impact, um, in some way, but which let's say how, how is having a child affected your work and then has, has having a child with um, special needs, has that also affected your work? For sure, having just having a child, and that also, just that event in and of itself and being responsible for someone created a laser focus in my, in my attempt at a career, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, up until Keaton's birth, I had never actually tried to make a career out of selling my artwork. I, I continued to exhibit my artwork, but I was working in film and um, working with photographers, and I was doing a lot of different kinds of work to sustain my life and and just making artwork on the side. But after Keaton's birth, I I felt like not, I need to focus on this now and and really, really get to it. And there, I mean, I think parenthood does this to a lot of people where it, it sort of lights a fire and, and creates a sense of purpose that you'd never known before. Completely. Right. So that was that aspect. And, but having Keaton specifically, a child with special needs and someone who is a part of a, a group of people who have been and are now and will continue to be treated poorly by the world has definitely affected my work. And I've really just recently, in the last couple of weeks, become more aware of how that has manifested. And I can, I'll try to explain this. Recently, I've been making paintings of... Uh, how do I... I don't even know how to verbalize this yet, Teresa. I'm sorry. It's so new. But I'm making paintings of great. objects that people generally... Well, thank you. I, I tr- I've been making paintings of objects that people in general ignore or don't care about. Mm, okay. Like what? Such as, such, such as I've made a painting of a, uh, like a weird little white tape dispenser. It's like, mm. who cares? It's a plastic little thing, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, I, or, or there's a painting of, you know, have you ever seen those 3M plastic hooks that you just glue onto a wall? Yes. Wherever they have a sticky tab. Yes, we have one yeah. on our so front those door. Things, like, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> we have one in our bathroom. And that's, I, you know, that that object in and of itself is so functional and so very little about aesthetics or looks, you know, it's, it's just something that is made cheaply and no one cares if it lasts very long and it gets thrown away and people intentionally forget about it. For some reason, without me even intentionally doing it, these types of objects have become important to me. And I've been trying to figure out why. And I just the other day finished a painting of 12 silicone earplugs. I mean, hmm. why? No, no, one want, no one would ever consider that to be a subject of artwork, you know, because it's silicone earplugs. Isn't that the, I mean, doesn't, to me, this is like correlates with everything that you've been doing. Like you're taking everyday objects and creating this 
fascination of being able to observe our physical the objects that we really don't sit down and say, wow, that's a beaut- that's beautiful. That's amazing. Um, so I think that even right. that you're just maybe going deeper into it, but I feel like this is kind yeah, of all yeah. encompassing because you're sort of teaching all of us to look at every everyday things and really appreciate yeah. them for what they are. Because often we go through life and you know, it's, we'll never notice how beautiful the darn cup is that's sitting there in the light, half full of water, um, with, you know, splashing right. reflections through the room. But when you start really looking right. at your art, it is a, it's a great reminder to like sit back and like notice all these beautiful yeah. things that we take for granted. Well, that is perfect. That's exactly what I'm hoping is happening. So thank you. <laughs> and, and, and absolutely, I'm going deeper into this because I'm, I'm definitely going to these objects that are less and less obvious as an attraction. And, and I think, I honestly think, I, what I realized just the other day, and I really think this is true, that this is my way of saying that these things exist and they should be noticed just as much as any other thing. And they should be given the same opportunity to be beautiful as any other thing. Which I think is the same thing I've been trying to say about my boy or people with Down syndrome or whatever. Whatever ailments they have, everyone deserves attention and love. And I, and I, I, it's the weirdest way to say this message to these odd little objects. And I, and I'm not even, it's not even a conscientious plan. It's just something that's happening without me even being aware of it. So that's fascinating to me. Yeah. It's, it's beautiful is what it is. It's, it's absolutely beautiful. And it is fascinating how it's coming up in this way with you. It is. It's so mysterious. And it reveals itself slowly. <laughs> the weirdest thing. I just feel like I'm on a, a ride and that I'm just, all I have to do is move my hand and choose the colors. And you know what I mean? It's like, I'm not in complete control. Mm-hmm. Of all, I'm not in complete control of all this at all. Well, that's super cool. Cause when, I think when we all recognize that, it's like one of the biggest uh, hurdles to jump through. And then when you realize, you know, we realize, well, I'm not really the one driving this, but... <laughs> <laughs> I will right. I will enjoy the ride. It's it makes it a better day for everyone. <laughs> right. Right. Exactly. I mean I at this point I feel like my only job is to try to remain open. You know? Mm-hmm. And then let the let let my experience show me the way. I don't need to dictate it or anything. So that's in that in that in that way I can't really take I can only take credit for being open and I can take credit for working really hard at, you know, seeing and, and reproducing visually what I'm seeing. But otherwise there's so much more involved here beyond me um, that I have to give credence to. Is that a new realization or did, have you always worked with your art in that knowing that you're not, you're just letting energy flow through you? I, I, I mean, I think it's been revealing itself to me for over a few years, but it's, uh, it's, it's pretty new. Mm-hmm. It's a pretty new realization. 
And it's interesting because, you know, after 2013 is when you started really getting acknowledged in the art community for your work all over the world. Yeah, for sure. It's been a huge change. And all I can say is what I realize now is that if I just remain open and sensitive and honest with myself and make work that is based on those experiences rather than trying to be cool or make cool images or or try to make popular images, I find that if I'm just doing what I'm supposed to be doing, suddenly people perk up and pay attention. And I think that's a spiritual connection based on how open I am, it opens up others. It's very mysterious. And it's, I feel honored to have had the experience where people have responded to me in my work. Well, I don't know how people wouldn't. <laughs> it's pretty awesome, your work. <laughs> well, well, it's interesting because it's happening to you too. You know, I see how quickly this, your um, podcast is growing. I mean, it's the same exact thing, right? It is. It is the exact same thing because I just, I had no idea. I had never thought about a podcast, right. but <laughs> but this is it, you know, and right. it's so fun and I love it. It's so great to have these conversations with amazing people like you and just seeing the amazing in everyday people, you know? Yeah, exactly. It's a really cool thing that you're doing. And, and I'm wondering if you would have gotten there without having your child. You know, wow, not, you know, yeah, that's true. That's <laughs> very true. I completely would have to agree. I mean, it's weird. It's do it to both of us. I know. So we're like riding this wave together, Josh, this different avenue. Yeah. Just different avenues. Yeah. We're on our own waves, but we can see each other. Mm-hmm. We're waving. <laughs> how is right. having Keaton and him having a special needs, having special needs, how has that changed your perspective in the world? Like, I know that we've talked about how it's changed your perspective in art. Um, but what, how mm-hmm. has it changed your perspective in your everyday life living on this planet? Uh, it's been a massive change. You know, um, I'm just way more, much more attentive to any vulnerable community, whether it's homosexual, transgender, people with ailments, uh, any, any person or group or animal or whatever that faces ridicule, hatred, or dismissal is very much in my focus these days. And I try very hard not to let an opportunity go by where I can send a, a moment of love or attention to those who don't get it very often. It's changed me a lot. I was not like that before. Before Keaton's birth, I cared for people who were those communities, but I was also intimidated or something, something kept me from giving the energy, whether it was fear of the unknown, I don't know what it was. So I I understand, I do understand why it's difficult for some people to give that energy. But all I can say is I'm now on the other side of the fence. And I will always be on the other side of that fence. And I will always give more love than I did before. Well, that sounds like a complete blessing. Absolutely. I feel like I'm almost embarrassed that I had to have that lesson. But I did. 
Well, we all have to have our own lessons, you know? We do. Yeah. You know, you know I think we'd always like to think of ourselves as being big and doing the right thing. But all I know, I'm just happy that I'm closer to that now than I was before. Mm-hmm. So oh, it's all good. Keaton it's all good. It's such a gift. He really is. Yeah, I would agree. What do you want everyone to know and understand about Down syndrome? I guess I'd like everybody to know that one of the things that people interpret as being a sign of stupidity is, for instance, when kids with Down syndrome have their mouths open and their tongues out, um, that symbolizes to so many people being dumb somehow. Like you can't even keep your drooling and you can't keep your mouth closed and what's going on. And I want, I would love everybody in the world to know that that is nothing but the lack of tone in their muscles. So it is difficult, more difficult for them than for people without the issue to hold muscles in a certain position. And the reason why I'm bringing this up specifically is that I've noticed that people in the world latch on to these visual clues or cues to signify something about the mental powers of these people. And I have to say, being tied into the community of Down syndrome for the last almost six years now, I am absolutely stunned by the intelligence and the capabilities within this community um, that are completely overlooked by our society in general and by many societies. And I find it very frustrating because while things may take a little more time, like learning to speak because of the muscle issues or even certain cognitive processing things are slowed down, just because it's slower doesn't mean it can't be done. So I guess I want everybody to know that looks don't necessarily signify what we think they signify. And secondly, there is so much to be learned from the intelligence and the emotional intelligence, the intellectual intelligence uh, of these wonderful people who have lived very difficult lives. And I wish that we could all in general give more respect to that community. Amen. That's all that I can. Yes, I totally. <laughs> I'm ba- I back that a hundred percent. I'm sure I could say more. And it's interesting that you bring that up with the muscle tone, because I that would have never occurred to me. But because you're living that every day, you're picking up on the cues from people, and so that's good to know, everyone. Yeah, absolutely. I think so. I think, and that and that's such a big one. That's that. I think the tongue mouth situation is the biggest indicator to people of something is wrong mm-hmm. and and the mind can take you to the wrong place so easily i mean i i didn't understand it forever either and i and i am guilty of thinking well why can't you close your mouth mm-hmm. you know and it's a great it's a great uh piece of knowledge for us parents when our kids you know observe something like that that we can explain and then of course it's the age old story of you know, the don't judge a book by its cover. Yeah, you know? exactly. <laughs> so just another reminder of that. Forever. Forever. Yeah, exactly. So jumping back to your art, if you could tell the world one thing about your art, what would it be? Well, I, 
one thing that I would, I would, I guess I would ask people if they could <laughs> to, while looking at artwork, including my artwork, but any artwork, to try not to start using verbal language to dissect it. Art is art because it's its own language. It's a visual language. It is there because it's we're trying to say things that typically cannot be said with words. So I think it's a disservice to the experience of art to think in words. And that's not something that's easily understood, perhaps. I don't know. Um, but I, if I could say one thing, I would ask, everyone in the world to, when they're looking at my work or anybody else's to try to be quiet, to not do anything, but let the visual experience bounce off your soul and your spirit and feel the reverberations, the energy that is going on between yourself and whatever you're looking at. And there's energy between everything. And if we're quiet enough and we're not just talk, talk, talk in our head, we get quiet enough and calm enough with the work, then we can certainly experience it in a way um, that I think is more in tune with what the artist wants. Every time I go and look at art, I'm like, I feel like the pressure that I need to describe it in words for some reason. Like, I feel like that's what right. art connoisseurs do, but I'm terrible at describing it. Right. As you know me, I'm just like, and it's beautiful, you know? So to me, that really is a wonderful, wonderful, wonderful gift um, and advice because I'd much more prefer to just look at it and take it in and not have to um, try to explain it because I'm terrible at explaining art and any, I'm not, I'm not good at it. And you are not alone. You are not alone in that, Teresa. That, that, that is the number one thing I hear from people that are looking at art, but have nothing to do with the art world is that they're intimidated by talking about it. That's the very, that is far and away the most common experience that I have. And I always feel horrible that that is the case because it, it is, it's something that gets in the way of all of us experiencing the work. Mm -hmm. So, so that's if I can gift. help you or anybody, yeah, absolutely. I hope so. Yeah, Thank you. That's yeah. Cause I, I just, if you can just release all that tension and just, ah, and feel free to say dumb words like that's ugly or. <laughs> yes. Or, I love that. <laughs> that is amazing. And just and then just to feel the energy, like any anytime anyone reminds me, just to sit and feel the energy, because you're absolutely right. There everything has energy. So when we can sit and feel it move through our bodies, I feel like that's even more powerful yeah. than trying to describe or absolutely. explain or observe in a mental state. Yes, and I, I can't really blame everyone for having that that need to describe it because like, just like you said, everyone knows that the art intellectuals talk about it in certain ways that are high and mighty and highfalutin and all of that. Correct. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But, but so there's a pressure because of that, but if you can get away from that, uh, it, it will certainly. We can feel free. We're moving away from it. Yeah, exactly. And then you can feel things so much more than. I love that. I love that so much. Um, thank you so much for that. And then I'm going to finish the show off. I usually ask, like, what do you, what does everyone do to make themselves a better, better 
uh, person every day. But for you, I wanted to ask, what do you do to get in the zone before working in the studio? Ah, good question. That is a process for sure. Um, Some days it's easier than others, but I typically use either music or podcasts, oddly enough, (laughs) uh, to get me in the right frame of mind to see, to get out of my own thinking patterns. Uh, Because I'm a very verbal person as well, and I also mess that up on a regular basis. Um, And if I can... Any activity like listening to music or a podcast, someone else's words, allows me to get away from myself. Then I can actually start to see and recognize which which choices uh, that I can make are important or unimportant choices in the studio. So as you try to release your mental self to create, Mm -hmm. is there like, Mm -hmm. is there anything that you do? Are you asking if I look at other artwork? Yeah, or, or just items, or since you paint items yes, and objects. Absolutely. I mean, I, I tend to set time aside to for quote-unquote research or whatever, where, I, where I'm really looking out in the world for things and trying to be open to new stimulus and new subject matters and whatever. And in those times, I definitely start looking at objects soon you know i'll listen to music and maybe listen to a podcast for a while but then i'll just start looking around i mean sometimes i'm looking through my house sometimes i'm going to a shop sometimes you know like a secondhand store Mm -hmm. Uh, sometimes i buy things off of you know ebay trying to find objects that are of interest during those times i've I've almost always started out listening to music or something Mm -hmm. near that Mm -hmm. i love it I think a lot of us listen to music to let go. Yeah. <laughs> I want to say, Josh, thank you so much for coming on the show. I appreciate you so much. And I appreciate you taking the time to talk to us about really what is your gift and the gift that Keaton has brought to um, all of us, essentially, because we get to witness it in your art. And um, everyone out there, I'm going to post, um, we'll have Josh's art up on the website and social media so you can see it. And then you can always follow him. Is Instagram your biggest place to be found? Absolutely. Can you tell us how to find you on Instagram? Yeah, it's just my name, Joshua Heiser, with a period in between the names. Okay, perfect. And even if you just search my name, it should show up. Okay. You know what? I feel like today I'm going to really try to notice the beauty, sort of carry some of the spirit with me and notice the beauty in the everyday objects that I'm using that I usually take for granted. So Josh, thanks for inspiring that in hopefully all of us today. Mm-hmm. And um, thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks for doing what you do, Teresa. Thanks for the venue and the opportunity to get this stuff out to the world. I appreciate it so much. So I hope you have a great day of seeing Thank you. I'm Teresa Gabrielle, and you've been listening to The Good with Teresa G. You can follow The Good with Teresa G on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. If you haven't yet, go to the Apple Podcast and subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. Join me next week for another inspiring conversation. Thank you for listening.